You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 76, Arnold's March Toward Quebec. So a few episodes ago, I mentioned that General Washington had met with Arnold at Cambridge. Washington had taken a liking to Arnold, despite the fact that most people who interacted with Arnold thought he had pretty much no political or diplomatic skills. Those who admired him did so mostly because of his fighting ability, not because of his personality. And those who hated him, well, that was a problem of his personality. Washington, as I said, seemed to admire the fact that Arnold was a good fighting soldier. Arnold had proven his energy and ability when he and Ethan Allen had captured Fort Ticonderoga and Lake Champlain, denying the British in Canada an invasion route to the south. But as I said, at the same time, Arnold's abrasive style made him quite a few enemies among his fellow officers, as well as the politicians who appointed new officers. Washington, however, needed can-do officers who could act on their own initiative and who had shown bravery in battle. Arnold was just such a man. By fall, Arnold and everyone else were following the movements of Generals Schuyler and Montgomery as they recaptured most of the territory that Arnold had already captured and then had been allowed to fall back into British hands. Six months earlier, when Arnold was ready to take all of Canada, Congress would not give him any resources to do so, and in fact ordered him to pull back and eventually took away his command entirely. Now, Schuyler and Montgomery were going to have to commit a lot more men, money, and resources to take that same territory that fall and winter. Everyone knew that the ultimate goal was Quebec and the American occupation of Canada. Arnold could not go back and serve alongside officers like Seth Warner, Ethan Allen, and John Brown, who despised him. But he could still be of service in the campaign. Arnold suggested that he be permitted to open up a second line of attack against Quebec, while Schuyler and Montgomery battled their way up Lake Champlain and the St. Lawrence River, Arnold would take a battalion up to modern-day Maine and hack his way through the wilderness to advance on Quebec from the east. Strategically, it made sense. Even though the trip would be a very difficult one over mountainous terrain, it would not be a direction the British would be expecting. When the British did find out about the expedition, they would be forced to redeploy from the limited number of soldiers holding off Schuyler's invasion in order to block Arnold's invasion. Washington decided to let Arnold prove himself. He helped Arnold to get a commission as a colonel in the Continental Army and assigned him about 1,100 officers and men for his assault on Quebec. Washington approved the mission in August, but it would be late September before it would get underway. By the time Arnold left, General Montgomery was already besieging the British at St. John, as I discussed back in episode 72. 
One reason for the delay was that Washington wanted to get General Schuyler's approval before letting Arnold proceed. Since Schuyler had met Arnold back in June and had taken a liking to the young officer, he had no objection. Another delay was that Arnold had to appear before the Massachusetts Provincial Congress and settle his financial accounts. This was back before Benjamin Church had been outed as a spy, and Church was heading the committee overseeing Arnold's behavior during the capture of Fort Ticonderoga. From the very beginning, the hearings went poorly. The Church Committee had received reports from all the other officers involved, Allen, Warner, Easton, Brown, Hinman, who all belittled Arnold's efforts and painted him as an egocentric nutjob who mostly got in their way while they were liberating Fort Ticonderoga and Lake Champlain. Arnold appeared before the committee expecting to be reimbursed for over 1,000 pounds sterling that he had fronted personally to pay the costs of the campaign. The committee was focused on the 100 pounds that they had fronted him and wanted him to account for that. The charges ranged from accusing Arnold of stealing 160 pounds that he captured on one of the British ships to the inane, like paying too much for a horse. Not accepting that one might pay more for items in a military emergency than when one is bargaining in a normal market. They also disallowed paying a carpenter for building gun carriages, since he could have had the soldiers, who had no particular carpenter skills or tools, build them on their own. In many cases, they simply did not pay because there were no receipts. Arnold had accounted for his expenses in a ledger, but apparently had not gotten a slip of paper from the person that he paid. In the end, the church committee paid about two-thirds of his expenses, leaving Arnold on the hook for over 300 pounds sterling, which was much more than most men earned in an entire year. Rather than thank him for his heroic work, the committee humiliated Arnold and treated him like some sort of scam artist. Especially given the fact that his wife had just died, he had three young boys at home, and that his shipping business was almost destroyed as a result of the war, many men probably would have quit the war at that point. Arnold could have gone home to make a fortune as a privateer. Instead, though, he was now offering his services to Washington for a new dangerous mission. While he was going through these hearings, Arnold worked to assemble his army from the volunteers in the area around Boston. Many soldiers were eager for an active mission after sitting in camp for months doing little to nothing. Two New England officers, Lieutenant Colonels Chris Green and Roger Enos, would lead the two battalions of New England volunteers. They handpicked men from many different units, looking for large men with wilderness and boating experience. Included in the detachment were a company of Pennsylvania riflemen, commanded by Captain Matthew Smith, and two companies of Virginia riflemen, commanded by Captain Daniel Morgan. The riflemen were all frontiersmen used to wilderness conditions. Smith had been one of the Paxton boys, accused of murdering innocent Indians in central Pennsylvania near the end of Pontiac's War. For more on that, you'll have to go way back to episode 19 for more information. Captain Morgan joined our story even earlier, serving as a wagoneer in the Braddock Campaign of 1754, way back in Episode 6. Morgan is going to go on to bigger things and will rise to the rank of general before the war is over. 
he had left his home in New Jersey as a young boy to start a life on the Virginia frontier. As I said, he worked as a wagoner along with his cousin Daniel Boone during General Braddock's Battle of the Monongahela. Morgan assisted some of the young officers on that campaign, like George Washington and Thomas Gage and Charles Lee, names we've all heard before, as they helped the army retreat after General Braddock was killed. Morgan went on to serve with the British during the French and Indian War, but his rough frontier ways never really meshed. He once got 500 lashes for striking an officer, though he always complained that they only gave him 499 and that the king still owed him a lash. He was a longtime Indian fighter and had several disfiguring scars to prove it. Another young volunteer named Aaron Burr also joined the battalion. Burr came from a relatively prosperous New Jersey family, which meant that he did not want to serve simply as an enlisted man, but also could not get an officer's commission. So instead, he joined as a gentleman volunteer to assist the army. Arnold was always in a hurry to move forward on a mission, and in this case, there were especially good reasons to avoid delay. Arnold wanted his men to get through most of the march before winter set in. He hoped to make use of rivers and ponds to move the most heavy equipment and supplies. There were no wagon roads through this wilderness. Once winter came and the water froze, it would become much more difficult. Also, as I said, by early August, General Montgomery was already besieging Saint-Jean, and once that fell, he would quickly move on to Montreal and then Quebec. If all things went well for Montgomery, the fighting could be over before Arnold arrived. Arnold did not receive his new Continental Commission until September 8th. Until then, he could not sign any contracts for the mission. He needed shipbuilders to make the bateau for his men to port their equipment over the water. He needed food, clothing, and munitions. Another delay came when his soldiers refused to leave before receiving their back pay. If they were going to be gone all winter, they needed money to send to their families. Over the next few weeks, they resolved all of these problems, and the force finally began to move in late September. The first leg of the journey would be to ship the men up the coast to Fort Western in present-day Augusta, Maine. From there, the men would move up the Kennebec River. Arnold optimistically thought his men could make the estimated 180-mile wilderness march from Fort Western to Quebec in 20 days. Part of this was based on maps that he had received from the French and Indian War. The maps he had, though, were inaccurate. British mapmakers often altered unclassified copies of military maps so that they would not be useful to an enemy. And that was the case with these maps. Arnold hired a local mapmaker and surveyor to make sure the route was good. Unfortunately, the man he hired was a loyalist who deliberately altered routes and distances to cause trouble for Arnold and his men. Arnold also attempted to hire local Abenaki Indians to serve as guides for the army. Washington, however, forbade the use of any Indians for the mission. So, from the beginning, Arnold's mission was misled, misinformed, and misguided. To get to the launching point, Arnold had to march his men to Newburyport. From there, he planned to ferry them the 90 miles to Fort Western via a small fleet of ships. Fortunately, even though General Gage had received intelligence that the Continental Army was sending 1,500 men up the coast to Canada, 
Admiral Graves refused to send out his fleet to stop them. If he had, he might easily have captured the Colonials at sea and ended the expedition before it even got started. A few miles downriver from Fort Western, Arnold met up with Reuben Colburn, the contractor he had hired to build 200 bateaux for his army to move upriver. Colburn had slapped together 200 boats, but most were smaller than promised. More of an issue was the fact that he had used green pine, which would continue to shrink over the next few weeks, leaving huge holes in the boats. For those of you without nautical experience, I will note that holes in the bottom of a boat can have an impact on buoyancy. Colburn had properly aged wood available to make the boats, but that would have been more expensive and cut into his profits. His contract only required that he deliver 200 boats. It did not promise that those boats wouldn't sink a few days after launch. Beyond the shoddy construction of the boats, which almost destroyed the expedition, Colburn had recommended that loyalist mapmaker who had deliberately sabotaged the maps for the expedition. Colburn also sent out scouts who reported false information to Arnold about the British in Quebec having sent out a detachment to intercept Arnold, and that the Abenaki Indians had agreed to assist the British and set up an ambush. Fortunately, Arnold decided to ignore this intelligence, which did turn out to be false. Arnold and his men, though, were not happy about the quality of the boats. However, they did not have time to fight about it. He began sending his scouts upriver in the best boats while his men worked to patch those that were not yet quite seaworthy. Arnold made Colburn come along with the army to continue fixing the boats while en route. It was probably no consolation to Arnold, but the government never paid for the boats, not because of the workmanship, but because the government lost the receipts. After finding them decades later, the government refused to pay because too much time had passed. Colburn and his family kept up the fight for 80 years, but never got paid. While Arnold was working to get his army into boats and moving upriver, many of the men got into trouble around town, looting Tory homes, getting drunk, and fighting. Washington had ordered Arnold to stay on good terms with all the locals, as they were hoping the French and possibly some of the Indian tribes might eventually support them. So Arnold had to put aside other work to hold courts martial, flogging and demoting several soldiers, and even discharging one. One man who accidentally shot another was sentenced to death. At the last minute, Arnold granted the man a reprieve and sent him back to Cambridge. I'm not sure he did the man any favors. While imprisoned in Cambridge, the man became sick and died after suffering a terrible illness. By the end of September, Arnold was ready to move his full army upriver. He had assigned each company of riflemen to a brigade so they could act as scouts. Captain Morgan objected, saying the riflemen were an independent command who were not required to take orders from regimental officers. Rather than fight the matter, Arnold uncharacteristically compromised, making each rifle company an independent command who would provide scouting assistance and intelligence to each brigade, but not actually be part of the brigade. Morgan would get used to having an independent rifle command, eventually forming Morgan's Rangers later in the war the forerunners of the U.S. Army Rangers that are part of modern-day special forces. Despite Washington's concerns about using Indian guides, Arnold got several Abenaki Indians to serve as guides for the Army. 
Arnold himself got a fast-moving canoe so that he could quickly move back and forth between the front and back of the army, which extended for several miles along the river. Some men marched along the riverbank, while others pulled the bateau up the river with all of their supplies. Colonial settlements along the coast only extended about 50 miles inland. Beyond that, the army would be traveling through wilderness, occupied only by Indian tribes. Summer droughts had left the water levels on the river much lower than normal, often making it difficult for boats to avoid running aground. Often, the men would have to get out of the boats, wade through the river, pulling the boats behind them, in order to get through the shallow areas. There were also numerous areas where rapids or waterfalls forced the men to pull their boats onto land and carry them for miles, sometimes over mountains. Each boat, unloaded, weighed several hundred pounds, meaning it would take a group of men at hard labor to carry each boat and then even more to carry all the cargo. It also did not help that by October, the summer droughts gave way to a cold driving rain. The men continued moving upriver through the drenching rain. They would often sleep in their wet clothes, only to wake up in the morning and find that the clothes they were wearing had frozen solid, making it difficult to move. After eight days, the army had moved about 50 miles. Despite the maps and surveys indicating a 180-mile trip, the journey would in fact be over 300 miles. There was no way they would arrive in 20 days as Arnold had hoped. Arnold had taken with him 45 days of supplies in order to be safe. However, it turned out that rain and leaky boats caused much of the food to get wet and spoil. They had to throw away most of it. They also wasted another week patching and repairing more problems with the boats. After reaching a spot known as the Great Carrying Place at the headwaters of the Kennebec River, the army had to carry their boats and provisions about 14 miles over the mountains to the Dead River. This process took another week. As you might guess, the backbreaking work, terrible weather, and poor rations soon led many men to getting sick or injured and unable to continue. Arnold had the men build a small cabin at the great carrying place to hold the sick and wounded, as well as some of the provisions. Through all of this, Arnold continued to report that morale was high. He may have been exaggerating, but Arnold seemed to be making every effort to lift the men's spirits. He seemed to remain popular with the men, always moving among them and encouraging them on. They hoped the trip might get easier now that they would be traveling downriver, but no. The rains got even worse as they got hit by the remnants of a hurricane moving up the coast. While moving down the river, rains caused the river to rise 12 feet in one day. The flooding scattered the men and cargo all down the river, which took even more time to recover. Already short on food, they lost even more of it in the floods. The land became swampy and mud-soaked. On top of all that, several hundred men drank some of the swamp water and became terribly sick with diarrhea. Despite Arnold's efforts, many were beginning to wonder if they could ever make it to Quebec. On October 23rd, Arnold held a council of war with his officers to discuss whether they should proceed. Arnold left no question that he wanted to move forward. The officers agreed that they would send back a few of the men who were too sick or invalid to go on, 
but that they would continue forward in hopes of completing the mission. Arnold would take the lead with 50 of his best men looking for the best route forward and correcting the many errors they were finding with their maps. After Arnold moved forward with his advance force, Colonel Enos, the head of one brigade, called another council of war without Arnold being present. He argued that there was no way they could continue. They were nearly out of food and had not found much of any game for hunting. Even in the unlikely event that they did not suffer any more setbacks, they simply did not have enough food or supplies to reach Quebec before they starved. Colonel Green disagreed and said that he would not abandon Arnold in the wilderness. In the end, Enos turned back with about one-third of the entire army and more than one-half of the entire supplies. Arnold did not find out about the defection for several days. Although he was clearly furious, he attempted not to show his temper in front of the men. Even if the remaining force made it to Quebec, they would not have enough soldiers to take the town unless Schuyler's army, still sucked besieging St. Jean, was able to join them. By the end of October, Arnold's advance force had found a passage across to the Canadian border. His forces were so spread out that guides could not get word back to all the units. Several got mired trying to move through a swamp. As food even for reduced rations ran out, the men became desperate. They ate a dog belonging to one of the officers. Many tried boiling the animal skins they had in their boats, trying to make a sort of broth to drink. Many began to collapse and fall out of the column. Arnold gave orders that any man who collapsed would be left behind. They no longer had the strength to carry the sick or provide them with any food. One of the men who fell behind was a private named John Warner, a Pennsylvania rifleman. The only thing unusual about his story was that his wife, Jemima, was with him and had accompanied the army through all of its difficulties. Jemima fell out of the column to find her husband. After he died a few hours later, the 17-year-old girl took up his rifle and caught up with the army. Although more than half of the soldiers had given up on this mission and turned around, Jemima would continue to press forward with Arnold's army. Finally, by November 1st, most of the army had found Arnold's path into Canada. Within a day or two, they came across several cattle, which they killed and devoured. Arnold paid the local French owner for the value of his livestock. By November 3rd, the remaining 675 soldiers stumbled into the French-Canadian town of Sartijan. Locals were shocked by the condition of the men, starving, wearing rags for clothes, long beards, and unwashed. They fed the army, which spent several days recuperating. Everyone rested up, except Arnold. He spent the next few days preparing for the final leg of the journey to Quebec. But for now, we'll leave Arnold and his men on the Canadian frontier. Next week, we're going to turn south as Dunmore issues a proclamation and the southern colonies see some fighting of their own. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust 
into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. For those of you who have wondered about how I produce these podcasts, I usually write the episodes months in advance. I record them several weeks in advance so that I have time to edit the audio and make sure everything's ready to go. This helps to ensure that I can get out the episodes every week without fail, even around the holidays, and so far I haven't missed a single week. These book recommendations, which I started adding to the end of each episode earlier this year, usually get done a few days before publication. I do this because they really don't require much additional research, and it's mostly just me talking without preparation. It's also a place where I can make more timely corrections to mistakes in prior episodes or talk about events that are happening right around the time of release. The reason I'm mentioning all this now is that in the weeks between the time I recorded this episode and the time I'm recording this book recommendation, I had an interesting online conversation with a descendant of Reuben Colburn, the military contractor who builds the boats for the mission discussed today. I came down pretty hard on Colburn, portraying him as just another bad contractor whose poor workmanship made life miserable for the soldiers and possibly even led to some of their deaths. Now, based on much of what I've read, that seems to be the consensus view about Colburn, but that consensus is based primarily on Benedict Arnold's reports and the reports of a few other officers on the mission. Officers tend to make themselves the heroes of their own stories and part of that is overcoming the hardship foisted on them by others. But as with most historical events, different people have different points of view on those same events. To better understand what may really have happened, it's best to look at the events from several different points of view where possible. And that's why this week I'm recommending the book Patriot on the Kennebec, Major Reuben Colburn, Benedict Arnold, and the March to Quebec, 1775, by Mark York. Mr. York is the descendant of Colburn that I mentioned earlier. Not happy with the traditional portrayal of his ancestor as a greedy and incompetent contractor, York has scoured other records to present the issue from his ancestor's point of view. There are some disagreements of fact. For example, I said that there was aged wood available to make the boats, and therefore no need but money to use greenwood. York has found statements to the contrary that there was no aged wood available. Many of the differences, though, are simply one of perspective. Colburn lived in a small town. The request to build so many boats in such little time was an insurmountable task. There's good argument that he did his very best under the circumstances given. Colburn was also tasked with finding food and other supplies for the mission. Colburn received a small deposit for the purchase of supplies and for the work, 
but he had to hire many men to assist with the building. He had to front money for these costs out of his own pocket. He expected to be reimbursed by the government later, something that never happened. Colburn also traveled personally with some of his workers into the wilderness with Arnold's soldiers. They continued to make repairs and patch holes as the army moved forward. They went through many of the very same hardships as the soldiers. First published in 2012, York's book is a short one at only 160 pages. I primarily relied on previous book recommendations when I made this episode, including Thrust for Canada and several of the Arnold biographies. York's book, Patriot on the Kennebec, is on a mission to redeem Colburn's reputation from the insinuations made by these other authors. So if you've read those other books, this one provides a different perspective on these events. Also, even though it is a short book, because it focuses on just this one mission, it is able to get into plenty of details about the mission itself. It certainly helped me to see the events in a different way. As always, there is a link to the book on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. Or, if you have Kindle Unlimited or access to Hoopla through your library, you can download it and read it for free. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.